You're listening to DraftKings Network. Boys and girls, welcome to another edition of the Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt. Can be a different podcast today. I'll explain in a minute. We're presented as always by DraftKings, produced by Jack Connell, musical producer. That music you hear under us is my son Sam Brandt, who's been in Europe since our time in Germany a couple of weeks ago. Anyway, I want to get to today's topic. It's a one-topic podcast, and I thought I would try to bring you insight, perspective, and deep analysis you don't get anywhere else. We're talking Michigan. Michigan football in the news for all the things that you've heard, whether Jim Harbaugh should be suspended, will be suspended, what they did, how it looks, where's the sports law and legal analysis on this, what are the chances for success of the Big Ten, of Michigan, of Harbaugh, and where's the NCAA on this. We're going to do all of this and not only me, you only not only one sports law scholar, you're going to get another one and a really good one. Gabe Feldman is my colleague. I'm at Villanova. He's at Tulane. He is the head of the sports law program at Tulane. One of the best, if not the best in the country. It's either his or ours. I'm going to be a little biased there. And then he is associate provost there as well for compliance. So Gabe is on the Knight Commission. Gabe has decades of experience analyzing legal topics in sports, especially on the college side. So Gabe will join me. We want to really get into, do a deep dive, deep dive for all of you out there wondering what's really going on with Michigan. It seems legal. What's really happening? Is Jim Harbaugh really going to testify? All of the above. We will get into that with my friend and colleague in the sports law world, Gabe Feldman. So without further ado, Let's get right to it with Gabe Feldman, Director of Sports Law, Associate Provost for NTA Compliance at Tulane University. Gabe, I've talked about you in the intro. Uh, it's great to have you. When I talk about issues in sports law, I try to be a scholar myself, and I like to bring on another scholar who certainly uh, fills that bill more than I do in certain ways. Happy to have you, and always good to chat. Welcome. Thank you for having me back on. Always a pleasure to chat with you. I wanted to make this kind of a one-issue podcast. We will, you know, I probably won't resist the urge to get your opinion on a couple other things going on, especially in the college space with the employee suits and the, and the potential for unionization on a couple of things. But I do really want to make this about Michigan and Michigan football. It's been in the news. There's a lot being said about it, Gabe, and I thought we'd take a deep dive with hopefully a, a little more uh, depth and analysis than we hear out there. Uh, if you're okay, what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to summarize what's gone on to this point before we get to the hearing on Friday. And I'd like you to sort of uh, embellish, add, edit, revise based on what I said. So what I have seen is that... Well, that's, and Andrew, can I say that's perfect? Because that's just like I do in class. I'll have <laughs> my students tell me the facts and I'll tell them what, they're, what they've gotten wrong and what they're missing. It's so it yeah, and both of us, by the way, we're doing this late Tuesday afternoon on the fourteenth. Both of us are just getting out of class, so 
Class is still in session for you podcast listeners. <laughs> um, the way I see it, there has been a rule since 1994, I guess, for the purpose of saving money and leveling the playing field. We hear that a lot in pro sports and college sports, where you couldn't advance scout and go to other teams and watch the sideline of other teams from the stadium. And we have learned that that rule has been broken allegedly repeatedly by a Michigan staffer over the recent years named Connor Stallions, uh, who engaged in this form of scouting slash sign stealing from stadiums scouting future opponents for Michigan in some cases, one case, Central Michigan game against Michigan State, actually on the sideline in some kind of disguise. He was paying people to go to these games, to film, whether on iPhone or some other mechanism, trying to steal the signs. And that's where we get to the sign stealing, which, as I understand it, is legal and if done manually, not legal if done in this form and electronically. Where that puts us is uh, Michigan in the crosshairs of two bodies. One, the NCAA, which is investigating, but as you and I know so well, that'll take months, if not years. And the Big Ten, which has looked into this and now applied a three-game suspension of Jim Harbaugh from the sideline, not from preparing his team during the week, not from meetings, not from practices, just from the games, one already played, two to come. And Michigan is challenging that, and Harbaugh is challenging that. Uh, They have requested a temporary restraining order to stop that suspension. It was requested Friday. It did not, was not acted on in time for the game the other day where Michigan beat Penn State without Jim Harbaugh on the sidelines. Now we approach next week. We have a hearing on Friday Jim Harbaugh is scheduled to and looking forward to testifying at that hearing. And we will see if the TRO, Temporary Restraining Order, stays in place both this Saturday against Maryland and next Saturday in the biggest game of the year against Ohio State. Okay, Gabe, <laughs> uh, what I miss, what, what, what's your um, any revisions, edits, additions to what I said? I give you an A plus. Okay. The only other little fact in there that's getting a lot of play, or I should say allegation, is that Connor Stallions was on the sideline for Central Michigan wearing Central Michigan gear, um, allegedly watching the sideline of one of Michigan's upcoming opponents. And so there, there's a there's a lot. And, and then he was also a Michigan super fan who had written a manifesto about how to improve Michigan football. So this is – the story is just – unusual from a lot of angles. Um, and, and I think just the other points I would add are that we have a new commissioner of the Big Ten. Right. We have new schools entering the Big Ten as part of conference realignment. And we have Michigan as a maybe the favorite to win the national championship. And you, you add that all together in the, in the gumbo, as we say down here, <laughs> uh, it, it just makes for certainly a, a, a newsworthy case and it's one of those moments, Andrew, you and I have been through a lot of these where more people will learn about a temporary restraining order and the elements of a preliminary injunction these next two weeks than, than might ever 
otherwise learn about it. So it's, it's, it, it is like many sports cases, a good teaching opportunity, but, yeah, but so many of, unusual, interesting facts. And it's part of the reason we're here. And I also want to, I want to double down on what you said about Petiti because now I want to start our discussion beyond the facts with commissioner power, because Tony Petiti is the new commissioner of the big 10 replaced Kevin Warren, who got the huge media deals, 7 billion over seven years as the new teams come in, UCLA, USC, Washington, Oregon, et cetera. Uh, and Petiti is relatively new. So as when I think of new commissioners and sort of touch point issues, I think about a lot of ones in the past, such as Adam Silver coming in to the Donald Sterling controversy of uh, secretly recorded racist comments. You think about Roger Goodell, the new commissioner in the NFL, taking a much different stance towards personal conduct than Paul Tagliabue, the sort of state lawyer before him did. So we have a new commissioner. I think that's a big point, which uh, which you said. And I guess where I want to ask you is, do you see the parallels that I do and talk to my class today about with the whole commissioner power argument here? We just said NCA is not going to act anytime soon. So you have the commissioner of the Big Ten acting and I would suggest he is acting upon urging advice, recommendation, demand of other Big Ten. I don't know if it's ADs, presidents, chancellors, whatever, just as Roger Goodell or other commissioners act on the urging advice, recommendation, demand of other owners. I see those parallels. Do you? Absolutely. And, and if you look at the, the sportsmanship policy that Harbaugh is being disciplined under, that there are echoes of the collective bargaining agreement in the NFL and the office of the commissioner and the commissioner's power. And so, and this idea, as, as you mentioned, that, that the NFL commissioner is literally a creation of the owners that that the without the owners agreement way back in the day in the Black Sox scandal and creating the Major League Baseball Commissioner's Office and every other league following suit, there would be no commissioner. And the commissioner derives his power or her power from the, the team owners. And here we're not talking about team owners, but we are talking about the schools that make up the conference. And the schools agreed to give the conference commissioner that power. So yeah, I, I think there are a lot of parallels. The one difference obviously is that the NCAA is sort of more the NFL equivalent mm. and we don't have the equivalent of the conferences. And when we do, we have the AFC and the NFC, but they're, they're not rulemaking bodies. Um, so this is unusual because the big 10, they have a financial incentive overall for their schools to do well as do their, you know, their, their other schools. And that's more so in, in basketball, but overall they, they have this financial incentive. Uh, and so it's, I think it's not um, surprising that this is is pretty unprecedented for a conference to step in and punish one of their own. That that's why we have the office of the commissioner in the NFL. That's why we have the NCAA in college sports because we're not sure we trust the conference or the school to discipline their own players or coaches or teams because they're self-interested. And so we have somebody sit up top to look after the best interests of the game. And it's unusual for a conference to decide that it's in the best interest or, or here again, it's violated the sportsmanship policy um, and to go ahead and, and suspend their, their not a flagship, but one of the flagship schools in the conference. And the, obviously the school that's having the most success right now on the football field. Yeah. I mean, 
I think of another Michigan man here. I think of Tom Brady, yeah. where, you know, there was a calculus going on in Roger Goodell's mind, whether it was from other owners like the Colts, uh, Jim Irsay, about punishing very publicly and very swiftly and decisively the most popular name in the sport. Now we have Tony Petiti, commissioner, deciding to punish, if not the, but certainly one of the most popular names in the sport in the conference, one of the most popular teams, if not the most popular. I guess if you, if I could ask you to sort of take us inside your calculus of Petiti's decision, whether advised by other presidents, other athletic directors, in-house counsel, other members of the Big Ten Conference, to actually impose this punishment. If you would, sort of take us inside how you think that decision came down. It's a great question, and, and I think it, it really does bring me back to Deflategate and Bountygate, yeah. and there were all these questions about why is the league doing this? If the league just said, all right, we think there were allegations of deflating footballs or, or, or Spygate or any of this, we've done an investigation, it's inconclusive, we're going to find you, and then that's it. Let's move on, and everybody would have forgotten about it. And yet the NFL decided against almost their interests to say we're going to take our star player, the, the biggest um, face of football at the time, and take him off the field. And it was not the path of least resistance. The path of least resistance to just say we did our best to try to find any wrongdoing. We didn't. There's some stuff that doesn't seem great, but he's going to continue playing. And I think you can say the same thing here, that for the Big Ten, the easier thing to do would have been said we're doing an investigation or we're going to follow the NCAA's lead. And we've made it clear that you can't engage in sign stealing, even though that rule may change soon with technology changing. Um, But that that would have been the path of least resistance to just say, yeah, we think there may have been some wrongdoing. Certainly seems like Connor Stallion's engaged in wrongdoing. It's not clear that Harbaugh knew about it. Um, And it's going to take a long investigation to figure that out. And we'll we'll do it in the offseason and then let them continue playing. And the fact that he didn't do that, to get back to your question, why? Yeah. And and I, again, I'm just guessing here. But if, but if somebody seems to be acting against their self interest, and you have to question, is it in somebody else? I mean, somebody else's self interest to do this, and, and maybe it is other university presidents or or donors or coaches who are saying, look, Harbaugh's gotten away with all this sort of stuff. We can't let him off the hook one more time. Now, keep in mind, he's already been suspended three games once this season right. uh, for recruiting issues. And, and I also, th- this is a little too much uh, tinfoil hat theorizing that I'm about to do, but this is all happening within the context of the future of college football very much in doubt. And whether this is going to be a break off of the big 10 and maybe the sec and some other schools, and they're going to run themselves and they're going to govern themselves. And this is evidence of them governing themselves saying NCAA, we don't need you. You go ahead and take your eight months or your 12 months, but we're going to show you how this would work if we ran it more like a, I don't professionalize a system. Uh, and so I, you know, I don't think that's why Tony Petiti is doing it to show that he can be the new commissioner of the, the, yeah college professional football league, but it's just, it's hard not to notice that the backdrop of all of this is that the future governance of college football may be shifting before our eyes. And and this could be part of it. And that the conferences are saying, NCAA, really, you are irrelevant when it comes to college football. We don't, you don't run our championship. 
and you don't even discipline for misconduct. Yeah, I do think there's some, it sounds almost trite, but some new commissioneritis of this as well, because like Silver and being so firm with Sterling years ago, it almost seems like new commissioner, I'm going to come down hard on a highest profile guy out there. So we don't know. We're sort of trying to get into the minds of Petiti and whoever's advising him. But this, you know, the other part I didn't mention, which I want you to get a I want you to comment on, Gabe, is that there's opposition research out there, right? So Michigan is pointing to, and again, I guess this is all alleged, sign stealing of their signs by other schools. I believe Purdue is named among maybe one or two others. Um, like you hear that and then it's like, you know, you, you default to, well, everyone does it. So I wonder about that now um, when we do get to sort of the merits of this and whether this outdated rule should, you know, there should be allowance because everyone seems to be cheating the rule, at least according to Michigan and this, as I said, this opposition research. Yeah. And look, I, we've seen this with every sports defendant or everyone who's accused of, of breaking the rules that one, I didn't do it. Two, if I did do it, everybody else is doing it too. And you're just picking on me. Um, And then three, it's even if I did do it and nobody else is doing quite what I'm doing, you didn't give me the fair process in terms of of punishing me. That's kind of the the playbook for for challenging suspensions or you didn't have the authority or you you overstepped your authority. And And I think in terms of the other teams are doing it, one, that's not a defense to say that other teams are doing it. It is a defense to potentially say, that they violated Michigan's process because they didn't have notice that this could be, this could be um, worthy of a suspension for a coach because other coaches have done similar things or, or knew about similar things and haven't been suspended in the past. So there is a process argument there, um, but it's also not clear what these other schools did because as you started the show with, there are differences in what you're allowed to do and what you're not allowed to do. And, and there's some sign quote unquote stealing. That's okay. Yeah. and some sign stealing that's not okay. And that, that may seem like an arbitrary distinction, but those are the rules. And the rules are pretty clear that you can't pay for people to go to opposing stadiums in advance of a game to scout. But you can, as you said, stand across the sideline and try to figure out why are they holding up a picture right. of Joe Montana and then Steve Young and then Wonder Woman? <laughs> and does that mean they're about to throw a pass or, or run the ball? Uh, again, that may seem like a silly difference, that you can do one but not the other, but th- those are the rules. So, and, and again, I think the rules are pretty clear. They may they may be antiquated. They may not make any sense now, but I, but I don't think the look everybody's doing this, so we, we should be able to do it. Uh, and there's also just the last one on this, just like we saw with the the at least the attempted punishment of the Saints in Bounty Gate right. and the punishment with Tom Brady. There is a repeat offender idea here, and. Uh, and also, if you've been warned and then you don't listen, I'm not saying that they've been warned about this in the past. I'm not saying what Connor Stallions did as a repeat offender of the recruiting violations they've been accused of early on. But there, there is a little bit of a, 
even if it's just perception wise. And again, just like the NFL owner saying, look, you can't let the Patriots get away with this again. Right. They've been in the crosshairs and you've let them, you know, you've destroyed the Spygate tapes. You can't let Tom Brady skate on this. There might be some of that with Michigan that look, Jim Harbaugh is cheating all the time. I'm not saying that's the case. I'm saying that other people are saying that Jim Harbaugh gets away with a lot of stuff. You can't let him get away with it now. And they may say, look, Harbaugh's probably going to leave anyway. So let's, like you said, uh, let's be the the new sheriff in town and show that we take things seriously and and we can govern ourselves and, and we don't need help from anybody else. Now, because this is conference and not NCA, I mean, again, you know this better than I do. I just want to ask about this. With this idea that Harbaugh's above it, he's at another level, he doesn't know this is going on below him. I thought there was something, and this is something in pro sports as well, where you're you're sort of responsible for those below you. And I'm thinking back to a basketball case, I believe, years ago in fractions against Larry Brown, whether it was Kansas or Memphis, wherever it was, um, and whatever went on with other students taking tests for his athletes or whatever it was, he was just presumed to know and was penalized. So does the Jim Harbaugh defense, I didn't know about it, carry water here? So it's two things. One is whether we believe he truly didn't know. Uh, so there's there's the factual issue that is it is it plausible that a coach like Jim Harbaugh would not know that this guy was on his sidelines? Um, and why he was on his sidelines. And, and so there might be just plausible deniability where he said, look, I don't know what's going on over there. Just don't tell me. Um, so whether he knew or should have known, they could say that you're going to be responsible. There's also the difference between the NCAA rules, which do explicitly put more of the burden liability on the coach to be responsible for the actions of the assistant coach. So it used to be this just this broad notion of lack of institutional control right. that even if you didn't know about it personally, if you didn't put the proper control in place that let these things happen, you could be held responsible for it. Now it's more direct that you are going to be held responsible for your assistance to just to avoid, try to avoid this very issue and try to avoid these lower tier coaches from taking the fall for the, for the coach, for the head coach and to avoid the the willful ignorance where you right. just say, look, do it. I don't, don't tell me how you're doing it, but just go ahead and do it. Um, but big 10 rules aren't as clear on that. And if the big 10 is punishing them under the big 10 rules, which they appear to be doing uh, there, I've not seen the equivalent that the coach can be held responsible for the actions of a subordinate without any evidence that the coach directed him to do something or, or, or knew about it and failed to stop it. Um, so I, I think that's part of, Michigan and Jim Harbaugh's argument here is you're which policy you're using and why aren't you waiting for the NCAA to act? Because even though, yes, the big 10 has brought authority or the commissioner has brought authority, it's not clear that this is the right type of case that the big 10 is supposed to be acting in and, and that they shouldn't be waiting for the NCAA. And so, you know, it's not that it's unlike in, in the NFL and other pro sports leagues where there's only one punishment. You can't be punished twice for the same offense here. They can, it looks like, the conference can step in after the NCAA has handed down some punishment. So there appears to be the possibility of double punishment, but not before. Yeah. And that's their argument is you have to wait for the NCAA and wait for them to act. And then if you want to do more, you can do more, but you can't jump the gun once the NCAA has begun an investigation. That's their argument. 
and again, the Big Ten that says, no, you're looking at the wrong part of the policy. We can do it whenever we think we have enough evidence, which, of course, leads to the question of how do they have enough evidence after after three weeks? How, how have they been able to do this this quickly when you look how long other investigations take? And like you said earlier, the sportsmanship clause seems to be extremely broad, going back to Judge Landis 100 years ago and all the best interest clauses and conduct detrimental clauses. It seems to be in that vein where kind of whatever the commissioner thinks. I mean, am I reading this this sportsmanship clause as broad as it, you, you think it is? Yeah, I, I, I think it's intentionally broad, intentionally vague, just like the best interest power, yeah. just like con- conduct detrimental. And it's as broad as the commissioner decides he wants it to be. And then until he's challenged and, and, and told, told and, until told otherwise. And the, again, these are the types of cases, if you look back at, at Deflategate and, and other than Bountygate, which was reversed by his predecessor commissioner, right. um, that the courts are going to be deferential. Maybe not the district courts, because the NFL right. lost most of these cases at the district court level. But the Court of Appeals look at this and say, this is a voluntary agreement. You, you agreed to give the commissioner this power. And if you didn't want it to give it to him, don't give it to him. Um, but once you give it to him and it says it's final and unappealable, then it's final and unappealable. And look, the schools have plenty of leverage in hiring commissioner uh, and, and they can create what rules they want. But the, the rules are there for a reason to, to protect against this kind of potentially, allegedly, this type of cheating. Um, so, I, it, again, yeah, yeah, it's 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 super broad. And I, I think if we had a full hearing and there was evidence that then Connor Stallions comes forward or other people come forward and say, yeah, Connor Stallions bought me a ticket to go watch his game. It certainly seems like on its face, a, a pretty easy case yeah. of violation of the policy. But again, the question is just the timing and the process. And that's, again, as I mentioned earlier, often the issue. It's, it's, it's the argument. Um, it's not that you broke up with me. It's how you broke up with me. Yeah. A- and same idea here. And, and that, that's why, again, not the path of least resistance for the Big Ten. The path of least resistance was to say, yeah, we've got to follow our policy and the, the most team and school friendly version of the policy, which is to let the NCAA investigation play out. It is really an interesting discipline, though, isn't it? I mean, Jim Harbaugh can be with the team yeah. basically up but for four hours. Right. right? So. It seems to me, and we're going to get to irreparable harm in a minute. I want to go. Th- I don't want to go there yet. But it seems to me this was crafted by lawyers in a way that, oh, the headline is Jim Harbaugh is going to miss some games, but the the truth is he's going to miss only some games, right? He's he's not going to miss anything else, in, including I suppose, you know traveling with the team and staying in the hotel for three hours. Uh, so what did you think of that punishment and all the little intricacies of it? I think you're right. I, I think it was carefully tailored. Now, again, the path of least resistance would have been not to suspend him at all. Right. So they weren't willing to go that far, but they were willing to say, and, and I, I, again, I would imagine the lawyers had some say in this is, it's going to make it easier to withstand challenge yes. if we make it no harsher than necessary. And we don't punish the innocent athletes and we don't punish the fans. And this would be a punishment to the fans if the coach can't be involved at all for the last three weeks of the season down the stretch to a fight for the college football playoffs. Um, so I, I do think that's 
that that seems likely to be part of it. And, and yeah, well, we can talk about irreparable harm in a in a second. But but it is I don't remember a punishment quite like this. We've we've had half game suspensions before, right, right. which were <laughs> always odd to me. <laughs> but they show up the second half, yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is maybe the coach equivalent of it, a little a little more drastic that you can go there up until the actual moment of the game, and then you can magically reappear. Yeah. All right. So Friday we have a hearing. It, um, Okay, now we get into the <laughs> sports law 101. It's not really sports law, it's law 101. Temporary yeah. restraining order. Uh, to have a temporary restraining order granted, and you can fill in here, uh, you need irreparable harm. A showing of irreparable harm really is, I guess, you try to define it without using those words. It's hard. It's irreparable harm is kind of irreparable harm. Like, yeah. you can't recover. It's bad. It's something that sets you back in a way that, you can't uh, compensate, be made whole. And that will be the argument for Michigan uh, that this suspension should be stopped and joined through a temporary restraining order by the judge. Okay, first of all, we got a judge that was a Michigan law school lecturer and he has recused himself. This is state court. Now we have another judge. What do you think of that, by the way? Well, and the other judge is a, is a Michigan alum, and that's just going to happen when you're in right. you're the in state Michigan. of Michigan. It's either going to be a Michigan alum or probably a Michigan state alum. So you're going to argue that it's either unfairly in favor oh, yeah. of the school or, or against the school. And these are judges who are appointed, uh, elected. Um, and so I, I, I think it's interesting that that the, the first judge did recuse himself, as I understand it, and, and maybe I'm confusing the two judges, but I believe that the, the second judge has already heard a case involving Connor Stallions, nothing to oh. do with with football. I didn't know. Um, and then there's all this stuff going on with Connor Stallions and, and one of the, the football players and they have a business together. Um, <laughs> but it is this is what why it's it, it's sort of fun and also maddening to teach sports law cases because a lot of times the decisions are based on the fact that the judge is a sports fan. We've seen it happen at the United States Supreme court. We could surely see it happen at a state trial court level, not saying suggesting that this judge is at all going to be biased or make the decision based on the fact that they're a Michigan alum. But uh, it certainly has to be considered that, that Michigan truly has home field advantage here. Now the NCAA, uh, the big 10 may try to remove this to federal court and, may try to eliminate yeah. or minimize some of that that home field advantage but you know that's the last point I'll make on the irreparable harm is I you you summed it up well that that it's basically you can't um fix it through money damages okay. Th- that money damages won't make you make you whole and so you have to step in and and stop the the suspension because once the suspension happens there's there's no way to fix it again no way to repair it you know, and, and I should say, as everyone knows by now, there was breathless media on Friday night and Saturday morning as Michigan prepared to play Penn State in a big game on noon Eastern time Right. that, you know, we'd have Jim Harbaugh walking out like Willis Reed once he's allowed to <laughs> coach because this TRO was granted. Of course, it was not even heard. The legal system doesn't move at the speed of college football. So... Uh, now we have this Friday and just basically your thoughts on timing from here, because again, is the big 10, 
uh, trying and able to run the clock out here because say she doesn't rule Friday, then he doesn't coach Saturday. Then there's eight days until Ohio state. So uh, what do you sense as for timing going forward here? Yeah, I, I think this is, this was one of the complaints also back with deflate gate that the league waited so late and, and with a couple of different suspensions they've handed down that they had all off season and they waited till the beginning, almost the beginning of the season. And it was unfair to the team and the player. Um, I, I think, look, I, I don't know why the big 10 waited until Friday until a, a federal holiday, a, a national holiday so that the court wasn't there. But as I understand that they might've been able to rule on it anyway, even though the, the courthouse mm. was closed, but clearly the judge by waiting till next Friday to set the hearing. Um, I, I don't know that, Michigan and Jim Harbaugh ultimately were prejudiced by this because it seems like if you're going to rule in favor of one side, you would set an earlier hearing. And there's also the problem with the, the, the challenge with a TRO and an ex parte hearing is that big, the Big Ten wouldn't have had a chance to respond. They, right. they were basically asking the judge to rule based on one side of facts and, and one side of the law. And, and I, I would say that the only thing, other thing I'd add is that the irreparable harm argument seems to me to be more and more difficult to make. Uh, there's the one, on the one hand, the, the law is pretty well established when it comes to players that missing games is irreparable harm. Cause even right. if you can get your salary back, right. you can't get back the, those, the, the, the awards you might pick up or, or, or just your starting job or, or whatever the case may be that your careers are so short right. that every game almost um, would, would be irreparable harm if you're forced to miss it. It's different with coaches. Obviously coaches have longer careers. Uh, um, they don't have that, that same timing issue. And it's also, they won on Saturday. They won the first three games where he was suspended. So from Michigan's perspective, I think it's harder to argue that, they're going to suffer irreparable harm um, just because they've, they've won those four games. Now you might say, well, that doesn't make sense. It's still, they should be able to have the best coach possible and, and their coach of choice. And then from Harbaugh's perspective, the the winning, you know, he wouldn't make this argument in court. I don't think, but, but that's almost doubles his irreparable harm. It's one, he's being labeled as a cheater and everybody thinks he's a cheater or enabled cheating. And two, this team can win without him. So he's cheating and they don't really need him. Um, but I, so I, I just think that the irreparable harm, frankly, is probably the easier hurdle to meet um, just because I think the likelihood of success on the merits is, is going to be difficult based on the, on the policy. But but they, they could win on both. I mean, you could certainly have a judge say, yeah, yeah th this is his livelihood. This is his reputation. This is the school's chance to win a national championship. Sure, they won the previous four games, but they may not win the next one. And if they lose the next one, there's no way to repair that damage. And there's also be difficult to say, well, they lost because Jim Harbaugh wasn't on the field because of the suspension. Yeah, I mean, there, it, it's really, um, I don't know, I almost feel crass talking about this in terms of pure football terms. They probably were, were going to beat Penn State, <laughs> and they should definitely beat Maryland. And then it comes down to the Ohio State, the massive tilt uh, in a week, in, in 10 days. So I guess the question is, I mean, thinking this is kind of my tinfoil hat, maybe on the courthouse steps or sometime while she's waiting to rule after Saturday, they decide, okay, we'll settle. Two games done, he gets to coach against Ohio State. I suppose that could happen, but it seems you, you brought up something that 
that's even we people aren't even talking about success on the merits. This is a bigger case, right? Everyone's just focused on, oh, is he going to coach this weekend? It's a bigger case about what Connor Stallions did and this cheating and and rule right. and violations and no matter how archaic it is, um, that's where this case is going beyond any of the is he going to coach Saturday stuff, right? Right, and, and the the still the mighty hammer of the NCAA that's sure. out there, and yeah. so that those there's still what's going to come out from their investigation, and will they then be even harsher on Harbaugh? Will they, as you as you suggested earlier, will they uncover evidence of other schools doing the same thing? Yeah. Um, and if so. What, you know, are they going to punish all these schools? And then if they do, is the Big Ten then going to say, you know, we'll see you later. We're going to go run our own football league and, and you can try to punish us, but but you don't have authority over us anymore. Um, so I, I I think that's certainly an issue. But you're right. I mean, this is just as, a, as sort of the legal issue. It's what is the scope of the conference commissioner's authority and how much are courts going to continue to defer in these types of cases? But as I brought that up, I'm, I'm thinking of the double jeopardy argument. I'm wondering if you can comment on that. So say they do, say the three games runs out, he serves them all, or say they have a settlement uh, where he served two and he can coach Ohio State, whatever it is. If the NCA comes back in eight months and says, you did wrong, here's a punishment, is it double jeopardy? Well, I mean, there's nothing in the rules that I've seen, at least, that prevent it from happening um, where they both could punish because they have separate rules. It's not like the collective bargaining agreement where right. the players and the owners agree that you can only be punished once and you know, and the, and the teams are, are part of that as well. And so you could uh, theoretically have the, the double punishment because it's a private association and they can decide to do that. And it might say that violates basic notions of due process and that even if the rules don't explicitly prohibit it that it, it just shouldn't be permitted because it's not permitted as a as a, a general notion in our in our law or at least in our criminal law but um but i also think the ncaa unless they just want to end up right back in court and and i i would think at a minimum they would say okay we we are going to hand down punishment but we're going to consider this to be time served so if we were going to give a three-game suspension you've already served a three-game suspension we're not going to put another three-game suspension on top of that because then they'd get again they'd get sued again and i think the the very last thing they'd want is from the attacks to be coming from inside the house you know at least now they they can see jeff kessler coming um from outside the house but not to have it be from from one of their own because if they lose support of the of the power five then they're you know, they're really in trouble. Then it's not just the external threats, then it becomes the internal threats as well. Right. And let's set the stage on my famous line, there will be lawyers, lots of them. <laughs> Sidley Austin representing the Big Ten, Tom Mars representing Jim Harbaugh. And now I have to bring up your connection, Gabe. Yeah. <laughs> your former employer, the Tony and extremely powerful Washington, D.C. firm, Washington, Williams and Conley representing Michigan here. Do you have any idea what the connection is? Have they represented Michigan in other matters? I don't. And I, I will say um, 
when I first started at Williams and Connolly as a summer associate, I got assigned to a case and the partner on the case told me that I couldn't tell anyone about it, including the other lawyers at the firm. And I was a 24 year old summer associate. And one of the partners came up to me and said, Hey, what are you, what are you working on? I said, Oh, I can't tell you. And he laughed. <laughs> and he said, no, we work for the same place. Now you can tell me. Um, but they're, they're incredibly, I mean, they're, they're one of the best firms in the world sure. and they're incredible at what they do. And I have asked and I have, no idea what the connection is. I have no idea who's working on the case. They've not been on any of the letters. They've been signed by Ford Manual. They've been signed by Michigan. And so I, I don't know. I, I don't know who's involved, how they're involved. But um, if I had to, I would choose Williams and Connolly to defend me and know where it was. I still have a lot of friends at the firm and yeah. they're some of the smartest people I've, I've ever met. So Michigan is, is definitely in good hands. I just don't know whose hands they're in. Yeah, and you and I know the firm well. You know it obviously a lot better than I do, but they've been involved in sports. My start of my career was across the street from them yeah. at ProServe with Donald Dell and David Falk. And of course, we used their services back then and still at it uh, in a big way in sports. So this is not a shock. But yeah, I mean, this is a high powered, uh, <laughs> high powered lawyers all around here. And let's talk about strategy here. Jim Harbaugh spoke at his press conference yesterday, almost in delight that he will be speaking, testifying on Friday. Uh, he seems tickled <laughs> that he's going to do this. Um, if you're his lawyer, if you're Michigan's lawyers, how do you feel about this? He seems, I mean, a wild card is an understatement. Um <laughs> Just quick story, Gabe. I, you know, I spoke at, to Stanford at one of my reunions to the football team. Harbaugh was long gone by then, but a lot of those guys worked with him. And uh, yeah, one of them said to me, one of the assistants said, "Yeah, he's crazy." And I laughed. You know, when you say someone's crazy, laugh. I laughed. No one was laughing. <laughs> like no one was laughing. They said he's crazy, and they were serious. So anyway, this is the guy going on the stand. On Friday, what do we look for there? Well, I I don't. Um, it, it's a good question, and to try to coach a coach, and <laughs> yeah. um, it, it's uh, he he made a comment. I, I think uh, he said that he always wanted to be a lawyer, or he considered being a lawyer, and he made some joke about a few good men. Yeah. So maybe he'll go Colonel Jessup <laughs> on there and say that you know you're damn right. I ordered the Connor Stallions to. To, to to steal the signs, yeah. but uh, I, look, I, I think for, for all of this, whether it's through the through the uh, court proceedings or through an NCAA investigation, that Jim Harbaugh's case is seems to simply be: I have no idea who this guy is, and I had no idea that this was going on. And there's no, you know, you have to prove that there was something going on, um, and that that he knew about it. And again, I. There, there's unlike in other cases we've seen, there, there doesn't seem to be communication between the two. There doesn't to be cell phone communication um, right. like we saw with Tom Brady and Deflate right. Gate. And, and so I, I think the coaching of him is, is fairly easy is just to say, look, I'm out there coaching and, and I, I don't know. There are so many people involved out there and I couldn't possibly keep track of what every single person was doing at every single moment. And that's why I have a big staff. And yeah, I knew this guy had written this manifesto, but but there was no way I would have allowed this to happen. Because why do I need to allow it to happen? Every other 
teams doing it by just standing across the sidelines and they were able to decode our plays. So why would I spend this extra money uh, and, and risk getting hit with a suspension or anything? Uh, so I, you know, I, and I think having him there and having a judge who's a Michigan alum, yes. but that's pretty powerful. It is an interesting uh, strategy by Tom Mars, who's a pretty aggressive uh, coaches and players lawyer uh, yep. on the college side where, like you said, coaching a coach, <laughs> he was making comments this week about his chickens and they're so productive because they don't make a fuss and they just lay an egg every day. <laughs> it's yep. just, where is this going to go? Who knows? And uh, it will be good theater. So, when we have a decision, whether it's, I mean, do we think this could be decided before the Maryland game on Saturday? It could be. I think they could decide from the judge could decide from the bench. Yeah. And again, that's that, as you said, otherwise it, it's running out the clock and most judges, particularly if you're in your hometown or your, your, your school um, like to kind of, be in the headlines. And so an opportunity to put Jim Harbaugh back on the field um, might be appealing uh, or to just to rule one way or the other, right? Because if you, if you don't rule now, then it's going to be moot um, right. in, in a week and a half. So yeah, I, I think it's, there's a pretty good chance that she will rule on Friday. The both sides will be there to make their arguments. Um, she'll have heard had previous of their legal arguments. So I, this is not, you know, this is not um, rocket science. It's also not what was the I'm trying to the, the the physics law that was involved in Deflategate. I can't the ideal oh, gas law. Science. This is not this is not that either. Uh, the, the, yeah. There's not. Um, I think this is something where where a judge can say again. You don't need a. It's not a, you know, a full hearing on the merits. This is yeah. just likely to, likelihood of success and, and the irreparable harm argument I don't think would be that complex. So, yeah, I think it's certainly possible we get a ruling on Friday. Now, maybe I'm overthinking this with Harbaugh, but it's almost like damned if he does, damned if he doesn't. If he wants to support his staff, his players, everyone he prepares for the game, there's really not a lot of irreparable harm for him being there. But if he wants to say, look how important I am, Right. You know, they need me, me on the sideline, which is probably not a great look for a coach, right? It's to, right. It's to make it about the team. So it's really, he's trying to thread a needle here, in my opinion, with this testimony. Yeah. And he's also, I, I do think the irreparable harm again for him is different than for the school mm -hmm. that yes, he can say that, look, I want to put the team in the best position to win, but I have great assistant coaches and I have great players and they're wonderful and blah, blah, blah. But this is about my reputation and I can't, repair this harm if I'm going to be suspended for two games or three games and then, you know, it might destroy my chance of getting a job in the NFL or another job or, or, or whatever it might be. So I, I do think that irreparable harm, Michigan can make the irreparable harm argument that we need our coach out there. Um, just like we need all our players out there and we need sure. our assistant coaches out there. And I think Harbaugh's can be a little bit more specific to him and, and the, the, the scarlet coaching letter that he'll get um, <laughs> if, if he can't play. All right, we'll wait and see. Before I let you go, a couple just quick comments on other things swirling around college athletics and student-athlete rights. It seems like we've got some cases really kind of brewing, and maybe they'll end up in front of uh, the most advocative Supreme Court justice we've had in a while, Brett Kavanaugh, yeah. 
or maybe yeah. they don't won't. But okay, house, a case that uh, and you can fill in was is trying to get nil benefits prior to 2021, and as I understand it, uh, a class action has been certified for this group, which may include a couple of thousand of plaintiffs. Where are we on that? Yeah. And so in the injunctive class had already been certified saying that they could rule on an injunctive relief, basically saying you have to stop right. um, enforcing these rules. And now the the damages class, which would be for those who would have been able to receive NIL money through endorsements, um, but but weren't able to because the rule hadn't been changed and loosened until till last two summers ago. And the other is for the broadcast revenue. So the the what wow. they're calling BNIL, sure. the broadcast NIL class, that that the, those damages are, are continuing to add up. Now there's a statute of limitations, so it only goes back so far. Um, but it but it's those are the the broad damages classes, and then you know there's some some other nuance to it. And under antitrust law, those damages would be tripled. Um, so you take whatever damage they suffered, multiply it by three, and that's what they would be on on the hook for. And then whether that's the NCAA or that's the Power Five conferences or whether that's the schools, you know, that, that remains to be seen how they would sort of divvy up that liability. But, but the stakes are obviously massive because we could be talking about four or $5 billion, billion dollars in, in damages. We also have the Johnson case, which is actually a former Villanova football player is one of the lead plaintiffs. And they are suing, I believe in the third district here in Philadelphia area where I am, for status as employees. Yeah, I and mean, we've got the, the Johnson case where they're trying to argue that they're employees under the Fair Labor Standards Act and entitled to minimum wage. And then we've got the NLRB activity involving Dartmouth men's basketball, USC, USC uh, football, basketball, and the, which would allow them to um, have the right to unionize and then enter into collective bargaining. And, and you know, I mentioned earlier that the last thing the NCAA, one, needs is another lawsuit. Um, and then two needs Michigan or other schools on additionally unhappy with them because these are these existential threats yeah. that might redefine the relationship between colleges and their athletes. It also may be the best thing that could happen to them because as we've talked about many times, the NFL and, and the other pro leagues uh, are immune from antitrust law when it comes to attacks from their players as long as there is a collective bargaining relationship. And so all of these antitrust lawsuits that the NCAA keeps facing, those for the most part, not necessarily retroactively, um, but for the most part go away if the players are represented by a union and if they agree to these restrictions as part of a collective bargain agreement, then labor law controls and not antitrust law. And so we're hearing more and more athletic directors and presidents saying, hey, maybe we should just recognize them as employees and, and negotiate with them. Yeah, because there um, would be some careful what you wish for on the player side with that. Right. As right. you just talked about with labor law and also they could be fired and taxes, et cetera. Right. Right. And, and it's the same, you know, remember with the NFL back in, in 2010 and back all, all the way yeah. back in 1989, uh, there was the owners arguing that the players were in a union and the players were arguing they weren't in a union. And so the fact that the, some college administrators are now saying the players should be in a union. As I've said to them, that's when it might be too late, mm. right? If you'd recognize them or given okay. them more rights beforehand. But now that the fact that you will benefit from them being in a union means they may decide to stick with antitrust law because antitrust law, just like with the NFL players was the, was the more effective weapon. 
um, and that uh, college players union may not be particularly strong, just like the NFL players union wasn't particularly strong when it first formed. None of these unions have a lot of leverage when they when they first form. And the same could be true for for college athletes. So they may stick with the the Jeff Kessler approach and just keep suing under antitrust law. Um, And then maybe they get a big settlement that includes potentially a collective bargaining agreement or just better terms and conditions of employment, whether that's recognition as as employees or not. But between the NLRB and the Third Circuit and the Johnson case and and the House case uh, and and everything else swirling around, as you said, there there are lawyers, not only will be there, there are lawyers. It's quite an inflection point, and I'll just end it with somehow we have avoided this topic, which is the topic of every symposium you and I are asked to join. (laughs) NIL is two and a half years old, and it's the Wild West still, and we have these collectives which are all about recruiting when NIL was never supposed to be about recruiting. Um, Listen, so this all funnels into what you just talked about with these lawsuits and where it's all going to go. I think, you know, the NCA strategy appears clear. They hired Charlie Baker, governor, former governor of Massachusetts, with his political connections to try to get a bill on Capitol Hill and have Congress save them. What do you see with those? Where do you see it uh, resolving? And despite the interest from so many senators and congressmen, it doesn't seem to be a priority. So where, where do we land with NAL, this continued morass of Wild West? I think so. I I do a lot of work with with the Knight Commission, and the Knight Commission has put a bunch of uh, proposals out front, including separating out governance of football, um, just recognizing that that football just operates differently than mm-hmm. other sports and has different needs, and maybe should operate under different rules. Uh, and also, in a, a, what's called the care model, which is the the schools taking some of their revenue and their shared revenue, which would include from college football playoff and lots of other sources and investing that in education, investing that in college athlete health and safety and welfare. And I think that to me is the key to be able to show to Congress and the courts that, look, we need your help. We are trying to make this about academics. Yes, we have big time sports. Yes, people love to watch it. But at its heart, it's still about playing sports within the academic environment and if we want to continue it being that way and we want to continue providing education and multi-sport, multi-broad-based uh, opportunities for men and women, then we need some protection from antitrust law. We need some protection from labor and employment law. And, and we are trying and we are actually putting our money where our mouth is, mm. uh, as opposed to every decision being made based on what can generate the most revenue. Look at all the conference realignment. Those are not made with education in mind. Those are made with revenue in mind. Every time they make a decision like that, you get another judge or another member of Congress say, what am I trying to protect? Why, why don't, why are you not, you know, when you get Jimbo Fisher getting that, that buyout, right. all of those are inconsistent with the educational model. And I, I think unless the NCAA, unless the conferences, unless the schools start acting in a way that is more consistent with the educational model, that does a better job of differentiating them from professional sports, that they're, you know, they continue on this trajectory. They're going to lose one of these cases, whether it's one of the current cases or the next case that comes, because uh, their just argument becomes weaker and weaker that they need to not pay their athletes um, so that they can be distinct from pro sports and that they need to focus on academics when they're paying millions and millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars for coaches not to coach. Right. 
that's that that's just it's hard to make both arguments at one time. So you, you got to fix something. And, and it can't just be I think it can't just be we're going to limit what the athletes get. Right. If you really want it to be about focus on education, then limit what the coaches are getting, limit what the facility spending is. Um, and they NCAA has always said, well, we'll get sued. Well, you're getting sued. <laughs> How come it only is the the athletes that you're willing to go to court over? But you're not willing to to limit the spending on on coaches and, and athletic salaries. Again, I'm not saying that if you want to go and be a school and go pay your coaches and pay your athletes, maybe that should be a separate model. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I'd hate to see so much of college sports. And and look, I I a college athlete advocate. I think they should be getting more. I think they should be they should be treated fairly. Um, but I, I also want college sports to continue. I want it to thrive. I want people yeah. to get as many opportunities as they possibly can. And when you're spending hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars on football at the expense of all these sports, I, I don't think that's a great result. And, and I think the NCAA needs to try to do something to rein all of that in. And if they don't, again, I think they're either going to lose an antitrust suit. Someone's going to declare that the athletes are employees and they're going to lose control. And so if they do want Congress to step in, I think they have to have a very specific plan that addresses the concerns that I've just mentioned, addresses the concerns that the courts have, have talked about, that Justice Kavanaugh has talked about, and say, look, unless you, Congress, help us, we can't do the things that we believe need to be done mm-hmm. uh, instead of what they've been asking for, and more so under the previous administration. I think Charlie Baker and, and his staff have done a much better job at this, but the previous administration just saying, hey, get us, give yeah. us a get out of antitrust oh, jail free card. Yeah, and then and then we'll we'll fix everything. Yeah, it's so interesting. I'll just add on the Jimbo Fisher situation in college versus pro contracts. I negotiated coaching contracts for the Packers for 10 years, and I never – saw a contract like Jimbo Fisher. I mean, I'm negotiating head coaches in the NFL and we never had a contract like that, which not only has this buyout, which is basically means it's guaranteed for the 10 years, which is fine, but no offset. And for those who don't know, offset is when you go to work for another employer, whether in coaching or media, that revenue is offset against the financial obligation of the team that fired you. Every coaching contract I've dealt with, and I've dealt with hundreds, has that. So Jimbo Fisher is getting his $75 million and no offset. Whatever he does on top of that is extra income. He can sit on a beach. He can go work for somewhere else. Uh, amazing. <laughs> and that's college, right? So that I just wanted to drive that point home that you made. Yeah, and it, you're right. I mean, because there is oftentimes there is a duty to mitigate to, yeah. to lessen the damages and, and here we're saying we don't you don't need to offset um and again not that the point needed to be proven any more starkly but i'm not sure it could have been proven any more starkly about out of control spending when you're paying that much for a coach not to coach and then who knows how much they're going to pay for the next coach right. to and coach staff and yeah and yeah all his fired assistants etc yeah. Meanwhile, you know, the professors on campus like us are saying, hey, can we get a little bit a little bit more over here? Not us, everyone else. <laughs> well, other than yeah, right, not us. Not us. We, we get plenty. Gabe, this is great. I kept you an hour. I really appreciate it. Uh uh, we continued our sports law instruction today, hopefully for uh, many more than our classes to listen to this and get a real understanding of what's going on in Michigan and beyond. I hope uh Everyone listens to this before Friday morning and understands what's going on and where it might go. 
Gabe, thanks so much. Always a pleasure. Always enjoy talking to you on and off this podcast. Thank you, Andrew. Always a, always a pleasure and, and look forward to chatting more about the next big issue that comes down the pike. Be well. Thanks so much to Gabe for joining. That was really interesting. I hope it was for you too. Informative with some unique insights from us scholars. It sounds so uh, academic, but we, I guess we are sports law scholars about this Michigan case. And we got into some other things with NIL and these cases swirling around about unionization and college athletes as employees. Uh, hope you enjoyed it. And hope this podcast is unique for you as it is for so many that tell me there's nothing like it in the sports business, sports law, sports space in podcasts. Newsletter, andrew-brandt.com. Get my Sunday 7. Every Sunday, I get into all kinds of issues. Of course, uh, Twitter, Andrew Brandt. Instagram, where I do reels, Andrew Brandt 2. Sports Business League. Go to sportsbusinessleague.com. We meet every Wednesday night. Hope you're enjoying the week and hope you enjoy this podcast. Share it with a friend and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts if you would. I really appreciate that. Thanks to producer Jack Connell, musical producer Sam Brent, my guest Gabe Feldman from Tulane. Thanks to you for listening. I'll be back next week with another edition of The Business of Sports with Andrew Brent.